Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Tech leading the way today, kind of bringing that discussion point up about, you know, as with these markets at or near all-time highs, how do you play it from here do you stick with some of those tech names that have been the drivers really since the end of the financial crisis, or are you in that rotation trade? George Young, partner and portfolio manager at Hillary & Company, he joins us. George, give us your thoughts there. The rotation trade into cyclicals, into smaller caps, that has been a great trade for a lot of investors. Kind of, Where do you stand on that portion of the market vis-a-vis -vis some of the, the big growth stocks? But we think the small cap stocks here at Villar and Company still have a good way to run. Um, there's been a huge rotation, as you pointed out, in the beginning of the fourth quarter of last year, and it's extended here into the second quarter of this year. We see that people don't have that many options. You've got 10-year government bonds at 1.6%. That's not overly attractive in the face of inflation. You've got cash that yields about zero, and you've got real estate that's pretty expensive. You can see that in the news left and right. So we think the stock market, and especially small and mid-cap stocks, are the way to go. You know, anytime you mention bonds, my ears will perk up. You mentioned a 1.6 doesn't really look attractive, especially in the fascia face of inflation. We have comments from Ray Dalio coming out as well, saying he'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond. Do you agree? Well, that's getting a little far afield. <laughs> I think Bitcoin uh, owners are going to have their day at some point. Um, it, it's amazing because a lot of questions that we field are from, I'll call them novice investors, and this is very, very reminiscent of the internet bubble back in 2000, 2001. A lot of people have not been in the market for some time. They say, I want to get invested. How about that Dogecoin? coin? How about that Bitcoin? <laughs> and that's what everybody wants. And, um, you know, you've got to be very careful when you start hearing newly minted investors getting into something they're not really sure. It's sort of like the old adage about poker games. If you don't know who the patsy is at the table, Patsy may be you. <laughs> George, I was uh, in the market during that, uh, uh, when the bubble burst, the tech bubble burst in 2000, and it was not fun, and, and the, it took a long time for NAS NASDAQ to retrace, retrace that. But boy, you step back and you take a look at some of the meme stocks. You take a look at SPACs and had, what a run they had late last year into early this year, and you look at the valuations of the S&P at 23 times. I mean, you could draw some, you know, some very close analogies between now and then. Are you concerned that this market is, is frothy, to, to use a technical term? Yeah, uh, that's a good technical term. I like that one. Uh, we've got about 15% cash right now for our clients and in our two mutual funds, uh, Villary Balance Fund and Villary Equity Fund. It is, it is. And we're long-term investors. So, uh, again, measure our long-term attitude and the fact that we have discretion to invest where we want with the fact that we've got 15% cash. That means that we're not finding that many things we want to buy. And we've got the liberty of not having to invest if we shouldn't invest. Uh, we've got loyal clients who have been with us for some time. We were founded in 1911. So uh, the clients we have trust us. And uh, if we don't want to buy something, we don't buy it. So this is more cash than normal. So, yes, frothy is an uh, entirely appropriate term to use at this moment, I think. What would it take for you to put that cash to work? Um, we need to see some cheaper valuations. At the end of the day, uh, all stocks should and usually do, but not always, on objective mm. metrics, which would be P-E ratio. Uh, P-E ratios need to come down, and often enough, 
they're aberrations in the stock market where individual stocks or individual sectors do become cheap, and that's when we're prepared to go ahead and buy. Uh, so we have the cash. We've got to be ready. Um, another, I hate to dwell on old adages, but when the ducks are quacking, you've got to feed them. So <laughs> if buyers want to buy, go ahead and sell. What are some names right now that you guys do like or you, you are doing some work on? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, there's some that we own and we buy some more of if they become a little bit cheaper. Um, one of those is eHealth. eHealth offers Medicare supplement insurance. Uh, you may have heard there are 10,000 plus Americans turning 65 each day. Each of these will be entitled to Medicare, but they need to get Medicare supplements, which aren't that expensive, but they are fairly complicated. So eHealth is good at navigating the waters of explaining complicated terms and complicated needs and to make sure that the right package is put together for a resident of Texas versus Idaho and to make sure that the doctors that you're comfortable with are part of your package. So a little bit complicated, but we think it's a relatively cheap stock. And then as an added interesting point, there are a couple of activist investors who have gotten involved in the company recently. So that should make for an interesting uh, few months ahead. What about this payments processor I see here, Paya, really looking at right. credit card debt and checks? Right. Paya is probably unknown. And again, we buy small mid-cap stocks. We buy relatively unknown companies. Uh, they're top 20 processor in the United States. They're number six in e-commerce. They've got 100,000 customers, 2,000 different partners, and they processed $33 billion last year. Now, they just make a minimal amount of money on that amount that they processed last year. But the fact that they're unknown, we like. The fact that they're very well-organized, well-managed, we like. We think they can grow at something like 20% per year. It remains a cheap stock, but it is you know, one of the small-cap stocks, so it's not for the fearless. There will be some volatility. Hey, George, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts on the markets and on some names here that might be of interest for folks in the small to mid-cap world. George Young, partner and portfolio manager at Villarian Company. And uh, uh, interesting, 15% cash. That's the highest yeah. percentage I've heard any you know money manager come on here and talk yeah, about. Yeah, but I've increasingly heard that, that there's been a lot of profit taking in the last few weeks, Paul, and you need a better entry point. And he mentioned it's hard with valuations with stocks and bonds, 162. How do you buy that after uh, exactly, inflation? Exactly. So we'll have to see. But 15% cash, that's a big allocation. This is Bloomberg. Well, several weeks ago, President Joe Biden pitched the first major set of tax increases since 1993. And now there are signs that maybe some anxiety is forming within congressional Democrats, not just on the Republican side. Let's get the latest on that with Laura Davison. She's a congressional tax reporter. Laura, give us a sense here of how this is going. I mean, I know it's kind of tied in with infrastructure, but boy, the discussion is really focusing on the tax plan. Where are we right now? So we're at the point where Biden has put out basically his plans and then has kicked them over to Congress for them to actually sort of put meat on the bones and, and write them out in legislative language. And this is what's starting to cause some angst in Congress because they're looking at sort of the outline that the president put out and are then trying to figure out how do we make this work. So they're going and they're talking with, with different members of the committee. They're talking with stakeholders. They're holding public hearings. And they're asking, you know, what if we did this? What if we did that? And some of the ideas they're throwing out there would weaken a little bit what Biden has proposed. So they're kind of looking at what is politically possible, what can get done, and specifically with an eye 
Republican members like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, knowing that those are going to be critical votes in the mm-hmm. Senate. So even in the House, where there's a broader majority, they still have to, to know that, that there's bigger political realities out there. Yeah, Laura, what do you hear about the Republican side? I've heard a few different proposals, a $600 billion, a $900 billion, a, a $1.7 trillion. Where are we on the counter proposals and the realism of that? So uh, infrastructure talks really hit a speed bump uh, late last week uh, where Biden put out a, a counter proposal, this $1.75 trillion, down from his original $2.25 trillion. And Republicans felt like he, that he didn't concede enough, that there mm. wasn't enough of a back-and-forth negotiation going on. Uh, you know, we're in a, kind of the, the last week before Memorial Day, which is kind of considered the uh, initial informal deadline to reach some sort of uh, in, you know, high-level, top-level um, bipartisan deal. It looks like that could slip and we could still be, be kind of where we are in couple weeks from now biden wants to get a deal but the two sides are really still far apart so are, are is fiscal stimulus and the tax plan are they linked can one go proceed without the other explain to us how that's developing well, there's many different permutations of, of what could happen here. But the, the thing to know is if there's a bipartisan infrastructure deal, it will not be funded by these tax increases that Biden has laid out. You know, Republicans have said, look, that's a red line for us. So they're looking at other funding mechanisms, whether it's user fees, whether it's looking at bonds, whether it's public-private partnerships, you know, other ways to get money that aren't tax increases. But Democrats are either cognizant that one of two things will happen. If one, these bipartisan talks fall apart and then they can move forward with a Democrats-only bill, which will include bipartisan tax increases. Or two, they do get some sort of smaller, you know, a couple hundred billion dollar infrastructure deal with Republicans. And then they go back uh, and they can do the rest of the Biden $4 trillion agenda, which also would include um, tax increases. So really kind of no matter what happens, tax increases are still on the table. It just depends kind of how quickly they move, how much they'll need and what it will be paying for. Interesting. What is the pressure to get it done this year and not next year in a midterm election? incredibly high. Uh, you know, basically everyone, uh, you know, is wanting to get a deal done this year. This is sort of informally seen as, as a deadline, but, you know, it could slip till, you know, January, February. But once we start getting to the summer, everyone's in campaign mode and passing a tax increase uh, would be seen as a, a political uh, a big, a big mistake. Laura, I think about President Biden 40 years in the Senate. Granted, they were many, many years ago. And I think Kamala Harris uh, just coming out of the Senate. Are they going to have any ability to kind of work their magic and trying to get some something through here, or is it just too much opposition? Um, you know, they really hope that they can. This is one of the reasons that, you know, that Biden, you know, campaigned on and one of the reasons he picked, you know, Harris as his VP. Uh, but, you know, there are really, uh, you know, just a handful of senators. So it's really not looking at, you know, how do we get, some, uh, you know, a broad coalition together? It's, you know, how do we get two or three or four uh, senators who are inclined, uh, who have tough reelections ahead of them, who have states that, you know, favor Trump or, or lean red? You know, how do we get them personally on board? So that's looking at for, you know, Manchin. How do we get uh, coal miners trained into new jobs? How for cinema? You know, how do we sort of moderate some of these, these tax increases? It's really specific versus a broad uh, sell on these. Laura, what do you see as the next steps? What can we look forward to? You mentioned we're coming up on Memorial Day. Uh, when could we start to see a, a reinvigoration, uh, perhaps, uh, of some of these discussions? I expect we'll see some back and forth between Republicans and Democrats this week, uh, you know, on if there's a still momentum behind a deal or if these talks just fall apart. That is also a possibility this year. We're also waiting to see um, from the Senate parliamentarian who will basically rule about, you know, how Democrats could proceed with a with a partisan bill on their end. Those will be kind of the key points to watch for, if not this week, next week. And then that'll really set the course for what the summer and fall looks like. 
what else is Congress working on? I mean, kind of all <laughs> we hear question. about is the infrastructure <laughs> and taxes. Not that they're not huge issues, but you're a congressional reporter. Are there other little things going on that we should be paying attention to? There are other little things going there. There's a lot of talk right now, and this is really inflamed the partisan tensions in Congress, is this um, doing a commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol that's narrowly passed the House last week. The Senate is set to pick this up, but uh, Republicans, even who initially said they were on board for supporting this, have, have since backed away. Um, this is really uh, setting up a lot of ill will between the two parties and doesn't bode well for doing something on a bipartisan basis uh, when it comes to economic policy. All right, Laura, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Getting the update on all things happening in Washington, and we can do that because we have a reporter who focuses on congressional tax issues. I mean, nobody else has that. I can't imagine. Laura Davison, uh, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. And again, it seems like um, it's going to be very difficult for President um, Biden, from what we're hearing from the reporting, uh, to get what he wants here. Right. And there's going to have to be a significant compromise. And you think about it, you know, it's the first major set of tax increases since 1993. That tells you something about how difficult uh, it is to raise taxes uh, for administration. I want to bring in Shanali Basak. She's a Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us live, I said live, in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Great to have everybody back together again. Shanali, let's talk SPACs here. Again, you know, I mentioned earlier that Dave Wilson would come in every day for stock reports and have to talk about three or four SPACs coming public and things like that. It's kind of petered out a little bit, but... They're still out there, aren't they? And they're still doing deals. They're certainly still out there. And there is still a hope that once the rules get clarified, that they'll come back yet again and they'll be a great way for people to go public. But right now, there are a lot of questions around how investors are paid in SPACs, uh, the performance of them, and then also all of the disclosures that come around SPACs for new people to really start investing in these companies that are really that are really young, right? They're, they're really not mature companies that are surefire things to succeed in public markets. Is there a sense that the performance will turn around? Was the shakeout of some of the big high flyers that seemed to break down, was that, as Paul had said earlier, a healthy correction or indicative of something more sinister that we haven't been understanding the way these work. What I can give you, Taylor, is the view from investment bankers, right? Yeah. So from investment bankers' point of view, it's good that the market has cooled down. Why? Because it was probably overheated. Companies that shouldn't have gone public have been going public. Uh, that brings down the average overall when it comes to performance. And so it cooling down is not a bad thing. So what's happening in Congress today? There's actually something kind of tangible here. They're really looking to rewrite the rules uh, regarding to the Securities Act of 1933 and 1934, Exchange Act of 1934, to add SPACs when it comes to forward-looking statements in terms of their financial performance. So what they're really trying to do is rewrite the rules here to make it easier for the investor to know how well that company will do when it goes public. All right, but the, the SPACs that are still out there, they're out there and they're still able to do deals, right? Yes, but the SEC, which is another kind of aspect of this, today's Congress we're looking at, the Securities and Exchange Commission is looking at all those facts and saying, okay, wait a minute, maybe we really need to treat you differently in terms of how you've already been doing your accounting. So that is also spooking some people, okay. right? What does that mean for the supply side, as I think Paul was alluding to, of you create this regulatory overhang, now not anyone yeah. can come, it's not the Wild West anymore. 
So if you have skeletons in your closet, you're not going to want to do a SPAC. <laughs> now, that is, that, is the, that is the bottom line. If you have financial performance that's iffy or if you think you're making statements that are probably a little too rosy, uh, everybody's got an eye on you from lawmakers to the SEC. So you're probably going to want to not go public that way. Yeah, it's it, but 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 we still have a whole bunch of these spacs out there, and they're all sitting there with dry powder. And uh, you know, I guess it was when I guess we saw some of these celebrities and athletes start to, and, and it seemed like they were just lending their name yeah. to these spacs, to maybe create some interest, maybe on the first day of trading get a pop. And I suspect that might have been one of the things that got regulators' uh, attention. Well, yes, and, and that's certainly true. But let me give you the flip side of this too, and this is why I think there will be a toned down, but not a complete clampdown. All of these famous people are investing in pre-IPO stocks anyways. These folks are all already investing in high-flying unicorns or starting their own. Think Jessica Alba. Today we wrote a story about Leonardo DiCaprio and Orlando Bloom. Oh, what's going on there? Oh, they're, they're backing this financial technology company, a neobank okay. called Aspiration, that is looking to go public either through an IPO or a SPAC. So long story short is they're already in the venture market. SPACs are another form of venture capital. Yeah, what is the new cool way now? Do we go back to direct listings? Do we go back to traditional IPOs? Did Oatly last week do an IPO? That was one that we'd been following. Exactly. And so to your point, IPOs are still the hottest mm -hmm. game in town. There are still tons of IPOs, even though we were talking about SPACs. Uh, there were, you know, more than twice the average of the last 10 years going public in last year alone. So this is good. Why is this good? Because before we saw so many companies like Uber, for example, wait forever to go public. And then by the time a retail investor gets involved, it's very late in the game. So shouldn't they have the opportunity to invest in more young companies? The question is how young? <laughs> right. And the question is uh, what kind of information does an investor need to have to make an informed decision about that company? Yeah, you, you compare the, the disclosure from a SPAC to the disclosure for an IPO. And when I was writing up IPO prospectuses, they were about you know half an inch thick, you know, because I had to sit at the printers all night and make sure every you know. Uh, everything was perfect. Now they're you know three four inches. You get the, all the disclosures for a company to go public via an IPO. It makes SPACs and direct listings maybe a little, from, at least from that perspective, a little bit more attractive. Let's just do a 101 here. You everyone should be picking up if you're going to invest. If you're a retail investor, you want to invest in IPO. They're hot right now. Go to the risk factors. Yep. <laughs> go to the risk factors and go to the uh, financial analysis and see if that company is actually doing any well. I think that one of the uh, earliest pieces of advices I got from a really good investor back in the day was when you get a prospectus, the first place you go to is related transactions. Oh. Ah. That's a good one. Risk factors have gotten so boilerplate. The related transactions, and, and now they're 50 pages long. Yeah. You know, we may have a pandemic, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but you go to the related transactions, and that where, is where you get to see some, if there's anything funky, in terms of, oh, we're paying this person, this company, this company, that, and there's you know, these off the uh, balance sheet uh, or uh, kind of tr transactions, that's where they pop up. So anyway, that's just a little uh, uh, lesson learned, I guess. Shanali Bassick, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Getting all things Wall Street. We're talking about SPACs today. Congress is holding a hearing on SPACs. Things might be changing in that market. Looking on my GLCO Go, that's the Global Commodities page. It brings up everything you need to know, know about commodities pricing. I look at the metals here. I see double-digit gains in most of the metals, with one notable exception, spot gold. Kind of flat on the year. Let's break it all down uh, as we talk precious metals. We do that with Everett Millman. He's precious metal specialist at Gainesville Coins. Everett, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts. Again, we see a lot of 
positive momentum in the metal space here. Uh, again, the exception is gold. Give us your thoughts on that precious metal. So it does appear that gold has been in this consolidation pattern for a while, but I think it is poised to break out of that and resume a more gradual grind higher. Uh, prices really just climbed too far, too fast in the early part of the pandemic. And so I think we're seeing that kind of shake out and normalize. Uh, this is the first time that gold has traded above its 200-day moving average since early January. And the fact that the U.S. dollar is a bit softer today also helps. Uh, but I think much will depend on what we're hearing out of the Fed. Uh, the rhetoric has certainly turned toward a tapering of asset purchases and the potential that we'll see interest, interest rates rise sooner than anticipated. But I still think it's a reasonable assumption that given the unprecedented nature of the post-pandemic recovery, the Fed and other central banks are going to remain accommodative. And so long as rates stay suppressed and inflation continues to rise, uh, ultimately, that will be good for gold. Is gold still a negatively correlated asset to Bitcoin when it comes to price and flows? It certainly seems that way. Over the past uh, month or so, the, the two markets have gone opposite directions. And anecdotally, uh, I have heard quite a bit of um, confirmation of that, those, those flow trends from crypto traders that um, – when there is a sell-off in the crypto market, that money flows into gold and vice versa. And I think the reasoning behind it is pretty straightforward, that these are seen as alternative markets to equities and uh, other more traditional assets. So I think that that trend will probably continue until we see a greater maturation in the crypto market where there is less of this panic selling. All right. So in terms of the crypto market and, and you know, as it relates to gold here, we've seen just some extraordinary volatility in Bitcoin, I mean, you know, an 18% decline yesterday, a rebound today. We've seen these double-digit moves, you know, almost on a daily basis from this currency. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin here? Is, it, is, is the volatility preventing it from becoming perceived as a, a real store of value? Absolutely. I do think that's the case. Um, not only is the volatility discouraging to uh, more mainstream investors, but these big price swings create network congestion uh, they create higher transaction fees when trading cryptos. And the fact that so many of these coins, their prices are highly correlated to one another, all of that makes it uh, less attractive to uh, uh, regular investors. There's just a different risk assessment that goes on there. And one other thing I think this reveals is that despite all the talk we hear in the crypto space about diamond hands and hodling, um, the behavior of crypto traders does speak to some inexperience, that they haven't seen these big up and downs in markets, and uh, the panic selling does remain a feature. I do think that that is one of the major obstacles to more mainstream adoption. Go on over with us to some of the other metals that we've been watching. Iron ore, steel, copper, China coming out with some big comments overnight saying that it's trying to target speculators and hoarders. Do you get this sense that within the commodity space, a lot of this has been based on fundamentals and future growth or some of these crackdowns that we see overseas? Uh, I think the crackdowns are mainly to blame in this case. Um, we have seen some lack of in infrastructure growth and some uneven manufacturing numbers that could speak to the fundamentals starting to shift more to the negative for commodities. But I think it is very telling that Beijing has stepped in. 
Um, commodity inflation is uh, a big negative for a lot of the consumers, a lot of the countries that are importing these things. So I think that the, from the policy standpoint, um, that is one of the uh, major factors that's driving this because, as we've seen, inflation has been mostly occurring across the board, but especially in the commodity space. Hey, Everett, let's just talk quickly about gold here. I know there's a scarcity of physical silver bullion. Uh, it golds up slightly year to date. What are your thoughts on gold? Uh, I'm sorry, on silver. Ah, right. Yes. Um, what's interesting is that uh, I think silver has the greatest upside among all the metals because not only does it combine uh, some robust demand from various industries, but it is rising as an alternative to gold in, in terms of physical bullion. Um, the Royal Mint in the U.K. saw a 500% increase year-on-year year in its silver bar sales. And it doesn't help that the London Bullion Market Association overstated its silver inventory recently by over 100 million ounces. Wow. So the, the idea isn't that silver itself, <laughs> the, the raw resource, is, is scarce. But, yes, the refined, finished product of silver bullion is rather scarce. And it's just difficult to find on the market right now. So that All is right. driving prices higher. Everett, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on these precious metals. Everett Millman, precious metals specialist for Gainesville Coins. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.